Good morning. Uh, today we're going to continue with the life study here on Paul in series two in the second missionary journey by picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, last week we saw from Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit was allowing Paul to go some places and the Holy Spirit was preventing him from going to other places like Asia Minor and Bithynia. So it's really important for us, I think, to start by, by saying this reminder that the book of Acts is a Holy Spirit-driven book. That, that is a main theme of this book. It's the main theme of Paul's life, and it highlights that we have to keep that in perspective as we move forward with the study. So last week we saw that the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul, Silas, Timothy, right, uh, to a town called Troas. And there two significant things happened. One, Luke, who was a doctor and the author of this book, he joins the mission, the mission team. That's a significant act. And the second thing that happened there was Paul had a vision of a man standing in Macedonia pleading with Paul to come and help them. And Paul saw that vision as a direct call from God, and so they made plans to immediately, the text said, to go to them. So today we are going to look at three incidents, three happenings that took place in the town of Philippi that forever changed the people in that town. And I think it's fair to say, I think it's safe, right, correct to say that incidents in the past influence incidents today, right? You think that happens? Like what if happened yesterday affects today. That same idea that life is built incident upon incident is true. And here are the three incidents that we're going to look at. One, Lydia's incident. Two, a slave girl's incident, and three, a prison guard's incident. These are the three changed lives that happened, and, and not only were their lives changed, but the people around them were changed, and literally, I believe that today, incidents are still being changed because of what happened at Philippi. So, Acts 16, verse 11, take your Bible, open it up right there, Acts 16.11, we will have it on the screen for you to follow along as you will, but I will say, I like when you use your Bible, if you can. Acts 16.11, then, so they got the vision, then, setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So there's at least a three days travel right here that's going on to a major city in Europe. And because it's a Holy Spirit-driven book, we ask, I wonder what the Holy Spirit is up to. Watch. And it says, we stayed in that city for a number of days, probably sightseeing, recovering from the trip, getting their bearings about how the city's laid out, all those things, right? Stayed there for a number of days. And then verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women gathered there, a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. They made a beeline for Macedonia, 
and they got there a few days before the Sabbath. I'm sure that they were scouting out the town, and one of the things that they noticed right away was there was no synagogue. And if you know anything about Paul, that he always hit up the synagogue first, which probably means that there were zero to very few Jewish men in this city. In this town, because the custom of the day for the Jews were this that if there were 10, 12 people, 12 men gathered together to pray, that would constitute reason for having a synagogue. And they didn't have that. So it's pretty safe to say that the reason that there was no synagogue here is because there weren't any Jewish men in this area. And verse 13 kind of confirms that. Look at what they discover. Verse 13 there is a group meeting for prayer by the river. So maybe when they arrived in town, they saw no synagogue, they started asking, hey, where do people meet to worship God around here? Where's that happening? And someone said, oh yeah, on the Sabbath, there's a group that goes down to the river and they pray. Oh, okay. And so they go there and we see that, yes, there is a prayer group and it's a ladies prayer group. Like no men are mentioned, just ladies. And one is named Lydia. Our first incident, verse 14, tells us a little bit about her. She was a dealer in purple cloth from the town of Thyatira. Now, if you know anything about Thyatira, it was known for its purple dye. Right, That's where it came from. And so here she is, purple, purple people wearing clothes. That sounds funny. All right. uh, were, were known as being very wealthy. Right, like So today... I kind of look like I came out of Lydia's shop. For two weeks, I've had this shirt in the closet, like right there, right? And some of you wearing purple, you would fall into that category of like, oh, he's wearing purple. He's rich. She brought her business from Thyatira to Philippi, and she's starting it right here. Her products look more like what we would think of like New York Fifth Avenue clientele more than maybe Target or, 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 or Walmart or Old Navy. We can find in other places of Scripture, it looks as if Lydia was a very successful, successful business lady. And here's another thing that is said about her, that she was religious. She worshipped God, and here we find her on the Sabbath, at the river, gathered for prayer. And if you're really paying attention, there's some of you going, hmm, the river on Sundays? Like, Beachside Baptist is where we can go? Well, settled down. They're going to gather. There was no temple. That's where they were. But this Sabbath is a little different from all her previous Sabbaths. Now Paul is there, and verse 14 says, she was listening to him speak. Does anyone want to take a wild guess at what you think Paul was talking about? Any guesses? Jesus, always the right answer, and it is. Like, I doubt he was talking strategies with Lydia, like, hey, now, in the tent business, we do things like this. How do you do it in the purple business? I I don't think they were having those conversations. He was talking about the gospel. And when he did, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. Let me say that phrase again. The Lord opened her heart to what was being said. The first European convert... Probably Lydia. Because the Holy Spirit opened her heart. Makes you wonder, wait a minute, couldn't Lydia figure this out by herself? Paul, super great teacher, preacher, he he can convince her, right? Salvation 
is always spirit-driven. Paul shared the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Put any person you want to in the sharing the gospel part. Put your name, my name, anyone's name, sharing the gospel. You can change the method of sharing the gospel. Like you can put it on a track, you can put it on a cereal box, you can put it on a billboard, you can do it in all different ways, you can change the methods. But you cannot change the way salvation comes. It always comes from the Holy Spirit. Now the text doesn't say what happened to the other women who were hearing the same thing that Lydia was hearing. Maybe, maybe those women were part of her, whole, her, her household that's mentioned there in verse 15. You see that? And her household were baptized. We, we don't know who is included in the household. Was she married? Was she widowed? Was she divorced? Did she have children? Did she bring employees with her to her house from, from Thyatira to Philippi to run this business? Those are questions that we just don't know, and Luke doesn't give us the information to that. So we're not really sure here if the other women gathered had their hearts opened to pay attention as the same way as Lydia. That we don't know. But what we do know is this. Lord opens people's hearts to pay attention. So therefore, share the gospel. That's what leads to salvation. And I would say, don't be discouraged. If you're sharing the gospel with others and you're like, oh, no one's listening. No, we share the gospel. And God opens the heart the way he sees fit. One of the most exciting things for me on Sunday mornings is to realize this, that we have people, non-believers, who come week after week. That's really neat. They come real, week after week, and, and some some very moral, but some are skeptical. Some are searching. And even like Charles said in the introduction, some came like being dragged here and grumpy and grouchy. But because the Holy Spirit allows hearts to be opened when they hear the gospel, I, I believe that one day he will do this for some of these people. Maybe all of them. And so when we are not gathered here, when we are out and about town, over coffee, at dinner, at the pickleball courts, school, work, wherever, and we're sharing the gospel Trust the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts to pay attention. That's incident number one. Paul meets Lydia, the business lady. Her heart is opened by the Holy Spirit, and she and her household are saved, and she convinces them, I don't know how hard it was, but she convinced Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to go back to her house. I bet it was a celebration. There was a party going on there at Lydia's house. What a great day at the river. That's incident one. Incident two pertains to a girl whose name is not given, but she's identified as a slave girl. Acts 16, 16 through 24. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, so where do you think they were headed? To the river. I think so. They were headed to prayer. A slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. 
Oh, okay, so what we got here? We've got this girl, she's a slave, she's owned by others, and she's got this business of fortune-telling. Well, you guys know what fortune-telling is, right? It's the practice of predicting information about a person's life. It still exists today to the tune of a $2.2 billion industry, and it's growing. But here, clearly, it is a demonic in its nature. It's linked to occult activity. It is nothing to mess around with. It's dark. And I will tell you, this week as I was preparing for this Sunday right now, it was creepy as I searched some things out. So I want you to hear from Good News Leadership, do not mess with this. Do not think, oh, this is something simple. Fortune-telling, astrology, witchcraft, tarot cards, spell-casting. It's real. The spirit world is real, but it is not innocent. According to Scripture, those spirits that are not the Holy Spirit or angels are always identified as evil spirits. And according to this verse, this evil spirit was producing a highly profitable business for these owners. And verse 17 says, as she followed Paul and us, the us there would be Silas, Timothy, and Luke, she cried out, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. They are slaves of the most high God. And she did this for many days. So on one hand, it's like, whoa, free advertisement for the missions team. She's telling the truth. She's right. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. You would think that the people would be lining up. Okay, get in line, get in line. I got to hear this. What's the way of salvation? But verse 18 says, Paul was greatly aggravated by this. What? Maybe it's the way she was saying it. Maybe it was a sarcastic tone, like belittling, like, oh, here come the Christian people with ways of salvation. Maybe it was very in a con condemning way. But turning to the Spirit, Paul said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her. The Spirit in this girl was powerful, but no match for the almighty name, all-powerful name of Jesus Christ. In the sports world, we call this an m and -er. It is a complete mismatch. Like, no comparison here. The spirit in this girl was limited. And Paul cry, uses this right here, and he, in the name of Jesus Christ, who has no limits, come out. And by doing so, Paul gives us the exact model that Scripture teaches, that the Bible talks about, for how we are to deal with demonic forces. And it's like this. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no way that we take on these dark demons. Paul did it, and we shouldn't either. No, 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 no. Bad idea. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ. 
we, we could go a long time talking about evil spirits, but we're going to press on. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, but not Timothy and Luke, Paul and Silas. They seized two of them, and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. For these owners, it was all about the money. Their cash girl was washed up. When you think about it, it's kind of sick. Like, what kind of people would be mad about a person being healed and recovered from a demon-possessed spirit? Well, greedy people would be. Selfish people would be. They don't care about this girl's well-being at all. And, oh, we could rabbit trail real easily because this stuff still happens today in the spirit world, and it certainly still happens in things like sex trafficking. Oh, it is sick. Someone gets rescued out of that, and there's an owner that is mad. Verse 20. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, the owner said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews, a little racial attack. And they are promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt or practice. Oh, it gets worse, verse 22. Then the mob joined in the attack against them. Remember, this is happening in marketplace. There's lots of people in a very big city. And the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had been inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. And receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Whoa. Incident number two looks a lot different from incident number one. Incident number two is a run-in with a slave girl whose owners are all involved in this demonic event this trip that was supposed to be going down to the river to pray was nothing like the first one i don't even think they made it down to the river there's no celebration at lydia's house going on instead this time they are dragged into town attacked by a mob stripped by the magistrates beaten with rods by their cronies and hauled off to jail all because they freed a girl of a demon spirit when you say that out loud that makes no sense. And now here, Paul and Silas are bloodied, swollen, and locked up. And it leads right to the third incident. Incident number three is with a prison guard. Acts 16, 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Stop. Anyone find that astonishing? Like, when I was doing a little personal inventory right here, like, what throws my worshiping God game off track? A red light. A red traffic light. And that's even with the Christian radio station on. Huh? A restless night's sleep can do it. Like, oh, get up and worship. And, and it throws my game off of, of what we're called to worship God. I think it's worth saying 
that if Paul and Silas can be singing and praying to God despite these circumstances, beaten nearly to death, stretched out in stocks, almost certainly anything that we face in this life is far less than this. Like seriously, Doug, a red traffic light? And it's just very confirming. There's just a lot of sanctification yet to come this way. Maybe you can relate. But I want to point us again to the Holy Spirit. Because this is the Holy Spirit in them. It's much more than just slapping these guys on the back going, Oh, Paul, Silas, you're such good guys. You're so spiritual. No, this is the Holy Spirit in them, and they are living it out. I find that very encouraging. Like, we can live this way. So while they were singing and praying, the prisoners were listening to them. Free concert in jail. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. Everyone's. Paul's chains, Silas's chains, all the other prisoners' chains were listening to them sing and pray. All of those chains came loose. It's going to be a jailbreak. Verse 27, when the jailer woke up, he saw the doors of the prison opened. He drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought that the prisoners had escaped. We, we come to a very critical point for some of us here. Because I realize that in this room, in our community where we live and worldwide, that there are people who are very skeptical about when they hear stories like this. Come on, Doug. Demon-possessed, removed. And now you're going to tell me that there's this perfect earthquake, like it's just strong enough to open the doors, just strong enough to release the chains, but no walls fall in and all this happens while the jailer's sleeping? Really? This is a movie. I get that. But real life? And I guess my response would be this. Battling unbelief of the Bible is nothing new. And let me be real clear. That includes non-believers and Christians. Thomas had a nickname, Doubting Thomas. He struggled to believe. Peter was doing great walking on the water until he didn't believe anymore. And I can guarantee you there are seasons in life that we go through times of Scripture and go, I don't know, God. And I think, I've been guilty of it myself, as Christians, sometimes we use this cop-out answer when someone says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, I'm a little leery of God, or I'm struggling to believe these things. Even as a Christian, I just don't know. And we say something like a circular reasoning answer. Like we say, one should believe the Bible because the Bible says it should be believed. That's true, but it usually doesn't end the struggle for people. So I want to say, especially to those who don't believe, who are struggling to believe, that the Bible provides proof that it's true. The Bible makes a pretty radical claim that the universe 
and mankind were both created by God and that God sovereignly reigns over all of it. It controls all the fate of all of humanity. If that claim is true, then the Bible is the most important book in the history of mankind. So the question is, can the Bible be tested? Can you fact check the Bible? Can historical dis discoveries over the generations negate or prove the Bible? What about science? There's been several instances when the Bible is at one place and science is at another place. And what happens is science advancements come along and they go, Oh, our scientific theory was wrong, which means the Bible was correct. And I say this to you to say, you can check this out. Skeptical person, unbelieving, struggling to believe person, check these things out. Do your homework. I would love to come alongside of you and help if I can. If the truth claims... Is the Bible even consistent? Like, it claims to have been written over a period of 1,500 years with at least 40 different human writers, most of, them, most of whom did not know each other. And they were from varying backgrounds, like kings and fishermen and tax collectors and shepherds. It was written in three different languages. And yet, you know what? It has one consistent, harmonious message all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You can check this out. If the truth claims of the Bible are found to be true whenever it is possible to test the facts, or if they are proved true during historical or scientific discoveries, then the Bible, then what the Bible claims becomes very compelling and trustworthy. The writers of the Bible claim that the Bible is God's very words. The guy who were studying his life, tracking his life, Paul, he said it this way, all Scripture is God-breathed. Meaning, all the words recorded in the original writings of Scripture they originated, they started in the mouth of God before they ever reached the mind of a human being. And they put it on pen and paper or parchment. So when we get to incident number three, which has some extreme specific details to it, I would say, based on the facts of the Bible, we shouldn't expect anything less. God has no limits. He reigns sovereignly over all things. And so, a perfect-sized earthquake, not too big, not too small, just the right size, falls right into this category. Today, northern Greece, which is where Philippi would be located, is the sixth most active earthquake place in the world. And I will throw this in free of charge for you. For the month of July, they have had 1,633 earthquakes as of last night, 9 o'clock. So this area in Philippi, it has a, a reputation for earthquake activity. But there is no mistaking 
that the timing and the intensity of it were divinely appointed. And this is a very important note to make. This God-prepared earthquake, it is not for Paul and Silas. It is for the jailer. I want to show it to you. Verse 28, Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. I I love jumping into the story sometimes. Like, would you have done that? Because I'm thinking if the doors are open and the chains are off, I'm running and I'm running fast. I'm making a run for it. But they didn't. Paul sees this as a great opportunity to not waste an earthquake. It's like he's got a purpose here. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because in those days, it appears that if a prison guard allowed prisoners to escape, the guard would receive the same punishment that the prisoner was to have. And the fact that in verse 27, he draws his sword and is ready to kill himself suggests that he had people on death row. Like the inmates there, they were set to die. Amazing that the ones who were listening to Paul and Silas sing hymns and pray early in the night, even they stuck around, though they had a perfect getaway. And again, we have to say, either this stuff is made up, like this can't be true, or it is spirit-driven activity, and that's the only way to describe it. Because inmates on death row don't stay in jails when the doors open and the chains are off. Verse 29, then the jailer called for the lights. He rushed in. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he escorted them out of jail and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Instead of quickly getting them all back in their chains and locking the doors and doing his job like a jailer is supposed to do, instead he is taking them out of jail. And he asked the question of all questions. He asked the question for all ages. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. So Paul and Barnabas, not Barnabas, Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the message of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and they rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. That phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it almost sounds too easy. In one sense, the gospel message is very simple to understand. The facts of the gospel are easy to grasp. Jesus died and rose again so that we can be saved. And yet, on the other hand, in another sense, the gospel, it's one of the deepest of divine truths that will ever be revealed to mankind. And here's the amazing thing. In order to be saved... It's not necessary to know everything of the gospel. In fact, understanding the fullness of the gospel and all that it entails, it is impossible on this side of heaven. 
There, there's not a person alive, not even Paul, can say, oh, I got it all figured out. No way. Believe. That word does need some clarification, though. Because today, we live in a culture that the word means something very different than what it meant back in these ancient days. Today, the word believe means giving intellectual agreeance to something. When something is said in a factual way, we will often say, oh, I believe that, or I don't believe that. But it's based on an understanding of intellectual understanding. Now, stay with me here. The first group struggled with this. I'm looking for a better response. I give you a warning. They didn't get that. Is today Sunday? You believe that? And you believe that because of facts. Is Abraham, was Abraham Lincoln a president of the United States? Yes. And you say that based on facts. But, they, they didn't, weren't sure about the Sunday part. But, but here, the word believe means trust in, rely on, cling to, attach yourself to something or someone and that's what Paul is telling the jailer to do. Not merely just believe the facts about Jesus, believe him with your life. And the jailer and his entire household believed the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved. Now let's think about this for a second. The guard, who very well may have been the one who was beating and putting them in stocks, is now inviting Paul and Silas over to his house for dinner. The guard, who was seconds away from committing suicide, is now rejoicing with his family because of their belief in God. It is remarkable. And now, the jailer's house, it looks like a kid's slumber party. It's an all-nighter. A sleepless night full of energy and laughter and joy for, for the jailer, his family, and Paul and Silas. I'm telling you, this earthquake was for the jailer and his family. They're saved. They're baptized. They clean up the wounds of Paul and Silas, and they have a meal for them at the guard's house into the wee early morning hours. Now, I don't know, married guys, how your wife would do with something like this. You're just showing up at the house with company, the jailer does it, and he does it probably at like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. But when you have news like this, oh, you wake everybody up. Verse 35. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent, to the, sent the police to say, release those men. So again, I want you to see, they are getting out the next morning. They didn't need that earthquake the night before. It was for the jailer. Verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. All right, more things to think about. Somewhere in the wee morning hours, the meal at the jailer's house, they went back to the jail. Did they get locked up again? Stocks again? I don't know. Paul said to them, verse 37, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in jail. And now, are they going to smuggle us out secretly? Oh, certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. 
And the police, they reported these words back to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And escorting them out, they urged them to leave town. Now, now Luke, Luke doesn't give a lot of details as to why he, he tells us these informations here. I, what, what, are some, what are some things here? Maybe it's to remind us that all who live godly will suffer persecution even unfairly. Maybe that's one of the lessons. I think we could take that from this. Maybe it's a lesson on how not to run civil government. It makes me ask one big question. If Paul was here right now in Silas, I'd say, guys, why didn't you tell them that you were Roman citizens? Like at the point where they get the rod out and go, here I come. Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Back up. They never said anything. Maybe that's why we have ID cards today, because of stuff like this. Maybe, maybe this incident helped believers in town not to be treated poorly in the future because of how Paul and Silas were treated now. It could be. It could be for a number of reasons. But they come and apologize. They knew they messed up. In verse 40, after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. A church has been started in Philippi. Let's, let's look at the roster, the church membership. There is the jailer and his household. There's Lydia and her household. Right? I, I don't think it's a stretch to say maybe the slave girl and, and her family, like when something like that happens, that's an experience that could lead to putting your trust in Jesus Christ. All that's true. And it comes to the question then of who's going to be the pastor of this bunch? You got Lydia, the business lady. You got the jailer, part suicidal just hours before. Maybe a recovering demon-possessed lady. Who, who's going to do it? I think the answer is right there in verse 40. Look at it closely. We had to do this last week. We do it again this week. Luke is the writer of this verse. And he says, after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. They came, they saw, they encouraged, and they departed. He doesn't use the pronoun we. You would think he would. Like, he was departing, but because it says they departed, I think Luke became Dr. Pastor Luke of this church. And I think there might even be more people involved with it than we realize. Because if you look closely, it says they returned to the house, encouraged the brothers. Maybe there's more believers. Maybe these three incidents had more of an effect for Jesus Christ than what we even know. I don't know. When we get done with the text, we usually ask a question like this. So what's the point? Why does this matter to me? What does it matter to you? Why does it matter to us? What's the application for a text like this in our lives? And I think one is this. Every incident that happens in life happens for a purpose. Like, life is an incident. 
Your life is an incident. And every incident in your life, it is either directly or indirectly. It is pointing you towards God or it is pushing you from God. And know this. Every incident of your life is driven by the Holy Spirit. Lydia's incident at the river was based upon thousands and millions of incidents before that that finally got her to the river and finally got Paul and all of his incidents to the river at the same time. Think about it. Thyatira to Philippi. Paul's wanting to go to Ephesus. No, I'm preventing you from over there. I need you over there in Europe to see Lydia. Oh, it's amazing. And I don't know how the incidents with the slave girl or her owner or the magistrates or the police or the mob, I don't know how they finally ended. Maybe over time, some of them also found incidents in their life that pushed them to Christ. Maybe some of them pulled them away from Christ. The jailer's incident. Oh, it was not lovely like it was for Lydia at the river. Don't you see it? Lydia at the river, nice little stream going, everything's there, praying and singing and this and that, and you hear the gospel, oh, what a day at the river. But the jailer? A violent earthquake? Suicidal? When his life was at its very darkest moment, probably, the incident pushed him to God. And that was the Holy Spirit doing that. reminder that yes the book of Acts is driven by the Holy Spirit but yes all of our lives are also driven by the Holy Spirit there is not there's not one single random act in your life no coincidental acts no meaningless acts the good ones the bad ones and even the tragic ones all of them will move you and will move me one way or the other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have done for many of us what you have done for Lydia. You caused our hearts to pay attention. And Lord, even in doing so, we rejoice with that. And I would just ask, Father, that you would continue to use incidents in our lives sent by the Holy Spirit that would make what we think of you even bigger and grander and truer, like that we would have better glimpse of your greatness. Lord, I pray for those who struggle to believe both, both non-believer and believer. And I'd ask that you would send incidences into their life, that you would send study time of the Bible into their life, that they can know Lord, I think we would all agree that a, a hope so, I think so, faith is icky.
but a no-so faith because you've revealed yourself is a wonderful thing. So help us to believe that way. Believe where we can rely on and cling to and attach ourselves to Jesus Christ. As we go out, Lord, keep it a first thought that all the incidents that are going on in our life right now, no doubt there are hard incidents going on, there's easier incidents going on, but Father, let us keep this, all these mindful, that you use these things to move us. And then let, let our voices and let our lives be lives that can influence others who are going through the same thing. And let us be then the bearers of good news. Thank you for Acts 16, Father. And these incidents. We ask that your word would be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray.